Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Shakespeare, even though as his language has become less and less accessible, uh, we continue to want to read and see his plays and his sonnets. I think these are signs that Jane Austen couldn't do her. But if we look at someone like Sir Walter Scott uh, and his novels, which were monumentally popular in the 19th century, but the kinds of things that he was uh, describing and interested in have become less interesting to us. So I guess in a way it, it depends on who we are, who we become. My crystal ball says, you know, I think relationships, romance, courtship, family, these continue, whatever our culture may look like, to be the building blocks of the lives of most of us, of many of us. And those, I think, are the central interest of what's going on in Austen's fiction. I do see her living on in 100 or 200 years. I certainly hope she does, because I think a world that reads her is a a potentially better world. What makes for a great writer? And is Jane Austen the female Shakespeare? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack the enduring appeal of a classic Jane Austen and ask why does her fiction continue to be noticed and read? This evening, I'm joined by writer, teacher and scholar, Dr. Devaney Louser, whose latest publication, The Making of Jane Austen, has just been published by John Hopkins University Press, where Devaney argues... It sounds impossible, but Jane Austen has been and remains a figure at the vanguard of reinforcing tradition and promoting social change. Devaney goes on to argue, Austen's literary legacy proves that you can't be both a popular and highbrow author in the way that Ronald Reagan proves that an actor can't become president. So who was Jane Austen? Why are her novels so popular? And how did she change the face of fiction? My name is Stephanie Loser. I'm the author of the book Making of Jane Austen, published this year by Johns Hopkins University Press. And I'm also a professor of English at Arizona State University. I've written a number of other books and edited a number of those books on literature by women and am a devoted Janeite or lover of Jane Austen and all of the things that surround her. Really well done on the book, uh, Devaney. I have to say, I learned loads about Jane Austen that I um, that I hadn't really known. And you bring up so much, so many different areas of culture, arts, performance, and, and so on. It makes for a very interesting read, both in terms of the life of Jane Austen and also in terms of who and what she was and what she stands for. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. Do you think popularity is killing Jane Austen? I don't. And I understand why people are concerned, and especially this year, which is the 200th anniversary of her death was in July. We've been seeing so much of her in the news and in just about every version of popular media you can imagine. But I get why people might feel like, OK, I've seen enough Jane Austen for right now. <laughs> they might need to go on a break from Jane Austen uh, you know, at the moment. But I don't think popularity is killing her in the slightest. I think, in fact, popularity is what is keeping her alive and has kept her alive, that coupled with critical acclaim. And the thing that I do in my book that I hope 
will convince people of that is show that her popular audience and her critical acclaim have traveled together beautifully for at least 150 years. Devani, you describe her as our go-to classic novelist and, you know, you give lots of different reasons for her popularity and status. But one of the things that's quite, quite surprised me through the years is that Jane Austen, is, while she's seen as a very popular writer and a very enduring and lasting writer, she's seen in person as a person that's very aloof in terms of how she presented herself or her, her persona. I think you describe, you know, how she was kind of seen as the kind of the harmless genius and you talk about uh, the anti myth. But do you think that's maybe stifled some of her reception in some ways? I think it's both stifled it in certain ways and enabled it in others. And especially during the Victorian era, this idea of her as harmless or safe or polite, I think really fit in with a lot of very um, widely held visions of what women should be. (laughs) So I think in that sense, that light Aunt Jane version of her really made it possible for more people to embrace her, as opposed to somebody like Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote important feminist philosophical works and novels in the late 18th century that I think were quite an influence on Austen. But her personal life, uh, if you know anything about her, was really daring and kind of a mess, and I think made it hard for people to say, here's a woman whose writings we love, but she's not exactly a paragon of virtue. And so Austen was written up as very much a paragon of virtue. And I'm not sure the extent to which it's true. Uh, We can certainly see in her writings that she was doing sorts of uh, racy things and uh, taking some risks. But her persona was very buttoned down. And so I think that both helped her and maybe hurt her a little bit with people who aren't as as finding that as appealing today um, as they might have 100 years ago. Do you think she's one of uh, Britain's greatest novelists? Because if we look at um, some of the writers uh, in and around her time, if we look at Thackeray, if we look at Dickens, then if we look at George Ellis, the Bronte sisters, and a whole host of writers, do you think she ranks there? Well, I'm biased. I think she's better than all of them. (laughs) So, you know, if if you're looking for an unbiased answer, I might not be your person. But I think there's an argument to be made for her being the best among all of those, both as a stylist, uh, in terms of the plotting, certainly in terms of the ways in which her characters continue to speak to us and endure. I think she both couples a kind of social criticism with a humor that is found in some of those other writers you named, obviously. Uh, what's, I think, more difficult to judge is that her output is a lot smaller than than many of those, especially if we're talking about the Brontes collectively, rather than comparing her, say, to Emily Bronte with, uh, you know, the one novel, Wuthering Heights. But Austen, with her six novels, uh, really has a fairly confined output. Uh, you know, there are some other miscellaneous writings, et cetera, but those six novels are what have made her name, and I, I think they're the best in the English language. I was very interested to read that Virginia Woolf credited her as an influence and that, you know, obviously she was in a, a moved into a different tradition, the modern Australist tradition, but that she always looked back and credited um, Jane Austen's style uh, and approach as one of the, as one of the, one of the masters. Yes, and a line that Woolf has about Austen that I just love is she said, Austen is our most difficult writer to catch in the act of greatness. And I think that is a a compliment saying she seems to do it so easily (laughs) that uh, what is great in her is that she makes it look so natural, so probable, so easy to uh, someone like, well, certainly as a a 
someone who engaged in this at a very deep level on a level of craft, but I think even to us as readers, on the, on the first reading, Austin looks like she's very simple. Um, I think it's when you reread that you see the depth of what she has done. Fact, the fact that the novels are so rereadable is also remarkable. And maybe you have to go through a few bad relationships to really embrace what she says. What do you think? Well, that's a very good. That's a very good theory. Uh, you know, I think the fact that so many teens are still attracted to her stories, and I certainly came to them when I was a teenager, suggests that maybe experience isn't the only way that she reaches people. Uh, but yes, yeah, romantic experience certainly does. I think enrich one's sense of what she's up to and what she knows. But how she reflects on marriage, let's say, as, as an institution, as a cultural model or force, so to speak, is as relevant as when she was writing it as, as as relevant today. Because the question she was asking in terms of what makes a good partner and, it, and you know, whether it's, you know, the high-flung, uh, sexy stuff or just the very um, kind of reasonable stuff about cohabitation, you know, how she looked across the different, I suppose, forces in a marriage and, and what makes it. Oh, I think so, absolutely. And in fact, I, I think if we look at her married couples in her novels, she's actually quite cynical about happiness in marriage, or at least as it exists over time. That is, many of her married couples seem quite dysfunctional. Uh, but there are also a few, I think, who are more models of what might be possible for domestic happiness in the married state. But she understands not just romantic couples, but families and family conflict at least as we can see it through what she's written in her novels. If, if she didn't understand it, she certainly wrote it in a way that speaks to us over years and years of social change and cultural change. You quote um, uh, the French thinker uh, Simone de Beauvoir in your introductions, and it's a, very, um, it's a very interesting quote. One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. I'm just wondering, can we apply that to some of the female characters in Austen's books? Well, I think we can in terms of education, and I think Jane Austen was really very interested in looking at a character like Emma Woodhouse in her novel Emma, for instance, is a good example. We hear about Emma from birth to her late teens in that first chapter and as you know, throughout the book as she grows. And you know, I think the one is not born but rather becomes a woman is about how culture educates us, culture shapes us and makes our lives possible and makes our self-conceptions possible. And Emma is a great example of someone who was born into wealth, into privilege, and who was spoiled. I mean, more or less, we start the novel by learning that she was spoiled and thinks rather too well of herself. So I think the point of her journey through the novel is to understand herself within a culture and to reach some greater self-insight than maybe she starts with. And so there, I think, of you know, it's not as if Austin was exactly anticipating Simone de Beauvoir, but she understood the ways in which culture shapes us and in which families shape us and that we are a, we are a product in some ways of, of the people around us who are reflecting back to us who we are. Is it too much of a stretch, do you think, Devonie, to say that um, her novels promoted social change to a degree? Because if we look in the immediate aftermath, um, we saw a huge change in, in British society and then across the world in terms of the role of women, their place and ideas on womanhood. I certainly do see her as part of a movement towards social change for women and especially for educated women 
in her day. And I think her novels continued to have a pretty profound impact as the 19th century, even the early 20th century rolled on. And one of the things I talk about in my book is the way that the suffragettes in the Victorian era and into the early 20th century used Jane Austen as a figure to argue for the importance of giving women the right to vote. And I don't think that's something Austen herself would have anticipated. But what I see in her novel is an interest in working within systems to give women greater access to more opportunities. And so I, I think that's very much in keeping with what I see in the novels. What do you make of all the unpleasant men in our novels? Because we, you know, we, we get plenty of them and lots of these suffocating social uh, rules. Um, she, she's brilliant at poking and picking at the different kind of norms within society. But I'm wondering what yeah. ultimately she could do about it. Yeah, it, I, I think it's a great question. And it's funny to me the extent to which a lot of what we say about her today gets sugar-coated. Because you're right, there are unpleasant men, and I think some pretty unpleasant women, too. I mean, she she can write unpleasantness uh, with just a, a rapier wit and incisiveness that is stunning. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think she was somebody who saw the good and bad in people, I would say. Now, what's interesting to me is that neither her unpleasant men nor her unpleasant women get punished to the extent that a lot of the fictional characters in novels of this day did. That is, they don't, uh, their, their punishment seems to be living with each other <laughs> or, or you know, she, she'll say something sort of half-hearted about what happened to a character who was rotten to the core, of, uh, you know, went on to live in comfort and had, had plenty of, of money. And, you know, we don't, we don't get a sense as we do in some novels that they were, you know, got ill or died or, you know, were sent off to a, a, a kind of exile away from everyone they do. This isn't what she does to them, uh, which I think probably says more about her her sense of what's probable and that she likely saw many unpleasant people around her getting away with it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what, what do they say? Hell is other people. You know, I think that the way she shows those unpleasant men and women getting their comeuppance is putting them around other unpleasant people. I wonder, though, if she got married, would she have produced so many other, um, so many novels? Like, she did. She died, I know, quite early in life at 41, which that would have been still relatively young in her, in her time. But, you know, the distractions within a, a marriage or a long-term relationship, I'm wondering would you have been so prolific? Well, there were married novelists at this time who were successful, active writers. So there were some. But I think you're right in general that once a woman married, her, especially if she started having children, it was very hard to maintain the amount of time required, I think, to, to write in the way that Austin was writing. So I do think her childlessness or being child-free or however we want to describe it had uh, made possible for her this writing life in a way that for others of her time it became less possible once you married and if you started having children. You highlight the uh, research work of literary scholar uh, Claudia Johnson. I think she's from Princeton University. And, you know, she has um, looked into all the different dates on Jane Austen's um, um, sexuality. Some see her as a kind of a lesbian icon. Others see her as this kind of asexual woman. And others have gone as far as to assume from her novels and persona that she was frigid. (laughs) Why do people get so bogged down and obsessed with somebody's sexual profile? Like, who gives a hoot? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this has to do with women writers and our special uh, concerns, issues, problems with what it means for a woman to write. And we don't hear people speculating quite in the same way about 
Charles Dickens, Romantic Life or Sex Life, although there's plenty to say there. <laughs> you know, it doesn't come up in every other sentence. Uh, it, you know, Shakespeare is a, a different case in that there are some very interesting things to say there. But again, I would say there does not seem to be a first movement to say, Shakespeare, what was he like, uh, you know, in bed, <laughs> right? This is, this is not the first question I think that comes up for him. But for Austin, as with many other women writers, especially women who are writing about romance and writing about sexual desire, I think we want to know where did they come by this information from, especially if she was unmarried. What, what underwrote uh, her ability to write like this, mm-hmm. rather than saying this is something that she could have observed around her or known from a very tight-knit family, these kinds of desires or activities, we, we want to say what was going on in her personally. And I guess I understand why we have that kind of curiosity, but in a way, I think we have it particularly for women uh, that uh, that isn't quite fair. But why do you think the debate hasn't focused in on, her, let's say, her psychological depth as a writer? Or how, you know, the nuances and the subtleties that she weaves into her narratives? Because that's way more interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, you know, and the, uh, she was obviously a keen observer of human relationships. And I think one can be that and have uh, with without having been married. And, and I guess that's the part that people, especially when looking back at the early 19th century, just have a hard time wrapping their mind around. I'm just wondering, um, you mentioned Ferdinand Pickering. He was uh, Jane Austen's first illustrator. And you describe him as quite uh, quite the eccentric. But I'm just wondering, how important was he in terms of, I suppose, packaging Jane Austen as a writer in terms of developing the kind of overall look and feel of her books? Right. Well, and what I, what I argue in the making of Jane Austen is that I think he's very important. And I should say he was the first English illustrator. There were a few illustrators working on the continent Uh, But he was the first one who illustrated all of her novels, and it was in 1833 they were republished, repackaged, and brought out to what was, in effect, a new generation of readers. He'd been hired by the publisher Richard Bentley to produce 10 illustrations for all six novels, and he did some things that I think are kind of unusual and fascinating. He focused on female relationships. He focused on women's intimacy, but he also gave everything quite a a sensational or gothic feel to it. And it, I think, would have functioned as a kind of advertisement to people opening these novels for the first time or even returning to them after many years saying, what is this novel about? Well, here's this illustration at the beginning showing a woman sitting up wide-eyed in a bed with another woman with her arms around her. <laughs> it turns out to be the two sisters from Sensibility from when Marianne Dashwood was ill and Eleanor Dashwood is comforting her. And, but I think the, the image itself shows us a certain kind of, uh, almost like I've seen a ghost quality is how I put it in the book, and would lead readers to go into the novel thinking it was about women and that it was about fear and that it was about intimacy and uh, you know, perhaps even the supernatural. It was a very sensationalized vision of what was in there. And so what I show is not only who he was, because we've never identified him before, but the kind of life he led. And as you say, he was quite eccentric. Um, he lived a life full of sensational violence around him, from what we can tell of his family life, especially after he published these illustrations, that suggests that he had a take. He had a take on Austin, at least a visual take on Austin, that um, would have imprinted others who look back on these books. 
You have a brilliant chapter, Daphne, on how stage performance of Austin's work shaped her literary reputation. And it got me thinking that, you know, some people will uh, come to Jane Austen through maybe uh, a movie. Some will come to it through the stage or others just come through uh, from their teachers in school or what's on the curricular. But it all changes, you know, whatever kind of, I suppose, medium you, 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 you absorb the art. It can change your understanding of the writer or some of the tones to it, can't it? Absolutely. And I think she's going through a, a stage revival. Jane Austen's fiction is going through a stage revival, a dramatic revival right now. Um, many schools are putting on this play now. Thousands of performances of this have happened, uh, of her novels in particular, Pride and Prejudice, have happened over the past several years. But what I show in the chapters you mentioned, and I'm glad you enjoyed them, uh, what I show is that the first dramatization of Austen in 1895 selected out scenes from her novels. And in particular, it's about scenes of domestic protest. And I think this is very meaningful for that moment. Uh, many young women would have first come to Austen's novels ventriloquizing the speech of Elizabeth Bennet saying no to Lady Catherine de Bourgh, saying no to this very powerful woman who was telling her how to live her life and what to do. And I think that scene and the idea that so many people would have voiced it, viewed it, and would have thought, this is what Jane Austen is, saying no to the previous generation, really changed how they understood what those novels were about. Do you think, though, in terms of general reading, that we've all got a bit lazy? Because a lot of people, again, would go to see, let's say, a Hollywood um, movie on, let's say, our BBC movie on um, Jane Austen, one of her novels. Or they, again, could go to a play or whatever it is. And then they go, and I don't need to really understand that. That's done it for me. I don't really need to read the book. Um, you know, I, I think I figure it out now. And that sometimes we don't, we forget the beauty within the reading and the subtleties within the novel. Yeah, I, I appreciate that many people like the films and get interested in Jane Austen because of the characters, the films, the, the things that they see on, on stage, or now, of course, there are comic books and manga versions and uh, the, the Lizzie Bennet diaries and things that are going on in Pemberley Digital. There's a video game, Ever Jane. So there, there are lots of ways you could come to Jane Austen and the art of the books. It would make me sad if many people didn't, after seeing those, uh, come to the fiction itself, come to the original novels in some way itself. That would make me sad. But I also think it's possible for her to live on uh, because of these other kinds of popular cultural events uh, that they keep her name out there and keep some people, keep more people coming back to the novels. So yes, I agree with you. Of course we should all be reading more. Of course you can't really experience a novel through a film in the same way. One of the aspects of, of the of the book that I found very interesting was about your own personal engagement with um, Jane Austen and that you've been a fan since you've been very young. But the one surprising thing um, was that you met your husband through Jane Austen. Is that right? Isn't that funny? Yes, we were at a, an academic conference. We're both professors. And we were at an academic conference called the American Society for 18th Century Studies, or ASEX. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the place where you'd meet a spouse. Uh, but he struck up a conversation with me and asked me about what my favorite Jane Austen novel was. And I hemmed and hawed and finally answered Pride and Prejudice. And he said, well, mine's Mansfield Park. And I said, well, Mansfield Park is my least favorite. And that, you know, we started right away with a Jane Austen argument. <laughs> and it set us off on, a, you know, a courtship and a marriage where we still argue about Jane Austen. Sometimes we argue about her in front of students. So... Uh, to say that Jane Austen has shaped my life in every single way is not an exaggeration. 
Well, on that point, I might throw you a quote uh, from Jane Austen, if that's okay. And I think it's one that's really good. But I'm just wondering in your own uh, perspective on it all. There is safety in reserve, but no attraction. One cannot love a reserved person. It's a brilliant quote. Do you agree with that? It is. Well, you know, I could say some things too about that quote in context, because it's it's an argument in Jane Austen's Emma about a character named Jane Fairfax. And it's a man who is actually uh, secretly engaged to Jane Fairfax who says that. And Jane is the one who's accused of being reserved. So it's funny in mm-hmm. that he's saying there's no attractive attraction to reserve to Emma in order to kind of throw her off the fact that he's actually in love with this other woman. So it's a complicated line yeah. from that perspective. It's interesting, right? though, isn't it? <laughs> But I think as a line, what I would say is I see that, especially in Jane Austen's early writings, that she throws off all reserve in her juvenilia, and she shows us the attraction of over the top. And I think a lot of her characters combine qualities of reserve with a kind of over-the-top humor, over-the-top incisive sense of what's going on. But in Elizabeth Bennet, who I think is one of her best heroines, she has a delight in the ridiculous, is what we're told. And she knows what to say in public. I, you know, I think she sometimes intentionally oversteps, uh, but you wouldn't say she's reserved. Yeah. And I, I think reserved is a, is a word that uh, has a kind of double edge mm. in a lot of what's going on in Austin. She also highlights the art of discretion and also of perseverance in relationships and kindness and patience, doesn't she? Like, there's a lot to be said for working at it and keep chipping away. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think, again, the fact that she shows, as you were saying earlier, her unpleasant man and, and some of these characters coming to a bad end, the ones, the characters who are, as you put, chipping away or acting with a kind of rectitude and rightness do seem to come to good ends. Uh, you know, maybe not the best of all possible ends. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Bennett, again, is the one who makes the best marriage after having rejected it once in terms of, of financial advantage. But the, the good characters, the characters who are in the long game, uh, who are looking within themselves and seeking to become better people in the world, uh, in a world that is often deeply unfair, I think, as she's shown. You end the book, uh, Devaney, on on rather a cautionary note. You write, I don't worry uh, too much about Jane Austen's good reputation going forward, as to it going forward at all. All signs point to yes. I worry more about our ability to study it within the historical nuance and cultural scope it deserves. I thought that was very interesting because I imagine some students that you have, um, they miss, miss out on that. They don't maybe factor that in. Yes, I think that's absolutely well put. And I, I think the, uh, the historical nuance and cultural scope is something that applies to any writer, not just Jane Austen. And you're absolutely right that it, when we bring her into the classroom, we want students to understand that issues of love may be universal, but issues of marriage, issues of family responsibility have changed enormously and may change yet, are likely to change yet still. And studying these things in context is important. It's not as if Austin's women had a choice between anything and anything else. You know, many of these educated women could have, uh, were faced with the prospects of either marrying or being financial burdens on their fathers and brothers. 
And these were really difficult and different economic circumstances, I think, from what many women have today as choices. So when we talk about choices in life, uh, you know, of course, no choices are ever exactly free. They're all made in strange circumstances. But I think it's important for us to see how in Austin's day, things were even more constrained. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American writer, teacher and self-professed Jainite, Dr. Devaney Lauser, whose latest book, The Making of Jane Austen, has just been published by John Hopkins University Press. I asked Devaney about some of the criticisms put out by Jane Austen's detractors and whether it's fair to argue that Jane Austen's novels have great characters, but minimum plot. Wow, that's hard, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm not one of those. Uh, I think Emma is one of the most beautifully plotted novels, again, in the English language, and it reads very much like a mystery. Uh, many critics have talked about this, that you are brought through Emma's consciousness into this set of relationships and clues around you, and you're seeing things through her skewed perspective, when you reread, you can see exactly 
how the narrator and Emma's thoughts are messing with you as a reader. And I think that's brilliant plotting, that you can see things the third time through, the fifth time through about some of the clues and conversations and the layers that were going on in those conversations that you couldn't have noticed the first time through. Um, but if we're going to, if you're making me choose plot or characters, <laughs> you know, I, I think her characters are even more brilliant than her plots, but I don't think her plots are in any way inferior. I suppose it depends what you're looking for in a novelist, really. And, you know, some days of the week you want uh, you want a lot of plot. You know, you want a heavy plot. You want it well structured and, you know, you want to get in on it. And other times you're you're looking for the, the company of character, really, aren't you? Sure. And I guess, you know, here's where, to go back to your question and say, of course, you're absolutely right, is we know that these are novels that end in marriage. No one's surprised by that. And that was very much a question of genre. Comic novels end in marriage. Uh, you know, tragedies end in deaths. <laughs> Comedies end in, in marriages. And knowing that going in, if you're someone who wants to be surprised with a big reveal at the end, uh, you know, about <laughs> how it all fits together, uh, you know, there there is a sense in which knowing that it ends in marriage, you might not know which characters are going to marry or which ones are going to fall in love. But in some sense, perhaps a disappointment with the plot would be understanding what it's all tending toward. Uh, for me, the marriages aren't the point of the books. Uh, they're, they're lovely <laughs> and they are satisfying to me as a reader, but they're not the point of the books. 